This is the Jacob Wolf Show, episode 41, Monday, January 23rd, 2023. Here we are, and we've got a new breaking story. In fact, what I should probably do is is go in and change the title of this show, and I think I will do that in post-production here because obviously uh, this breaking story is going to take the cake today as far as what's going on. And I've had a chance here before the show began, that's why I'm about five minutes late today, to actually read the indictment. Now, this is something that you're not going to see a lot of in media. It's clear from a lot of the breaking news stories out there that people did not bother to read this indictment, to read what is actually alleged uh, to have happened. Of course, I'm talking about the story of uh, this top former FBI official charged in the Southern District of New York with money laundering. Uh, this is a Mr. Charles McGonnell, uh, or McGonagall, as it were, uh, Irish Catholic by the looks of it, who has been charged with money laundering. But what exactly is alleged? What exactly is alleged to have happened here Uh what exactly is he alleged to have done in terms of money laundering and, and how uh, has this really played out? We're going to talk about that here. I mean, first of all, there's the obvious take. It was the first thing that came to mind for me uh, that here we have an FBI special agent in charge, a very senior member of the FBI who was uh, conducting the Russia investigation, the Russia, the Russia witch hunt against Trump. And Simultaneous to that, as alleged in this indictment, he was actually engaged in a form of Russian collusion. And so they talk about the conduct that takes place here between Charles McGonagall, uh, who is the special agent in charge of the counterintelligence division of the FBI's New York field office. So this is a very senior position, a very sought after position. Counterintelligence, of course, in charge of chasing down uh, foreign intelligence officers surveilling foreign intelligence officers operating within New York City. Obviously, that is uh, next to Washington, D.C., uh, totally uh, rife with spies, the, the nation's probably second most populous area in terms of spies. It may even be number one, it, it, depending on the time of year and what's going on, could even be number one. And so while acting as SAIC, as alleged in this indictment, he received and reviewed then classified uh, documents, including a list of oligarchs with close ties to the Kremlin who would be considered for sanctions to be imposed as a result of Russia's 2014 conflict with Ukraine. And so he's dealing with this uh, Sergei uh, Shestakov. Uh, this uh, person is basically a, a former Russian uh, who became a U.S. citizen, maintained a residence in Connecticut, and was acting sort of as an interpreter around the courts. This person becomes a, a co-conspirator and is also charged in this indictment. McGonagall deals with him, uh, basically helps him get the child of a person who is said to be a Russian intelligence agent here into the New York Police Department as an intern uh, for what they called a VIP treatment. I'm reading here from uh, the indictment. It says, in or about the spring of summer of 2018, spring or summer of 2018, Shostakov asked McGonagall to help Agent One, this is an unnamed uh, co-conspirator here, obtain an internship with the New York City Police Department, NYPD, for Agent One's daughter in the field of counterterrorism, intelligence gathering, and international liaisoning. So a very particular kind of internship, not just any internship. McGonagall agreed to help, and he requested assistance from a contact in the NYPD. Obviously, he would have a lot of contacts given his position at the FBI. Uh, telling the contact, quote, I have an interest in her father for a number of reasons. McGonagall also informed an FBI supervisor who worked for McGonagall that McGonagall wanted to recruit Agent One, who was, according to McGonagall, a Russian intelligence officer. So he's claiming that Agent One is a Russian intelligence officer. Is Agent One a Russian intelligence officer? I don't know. Agent One is not named here. Are they a defector? Are they merely a cooperator? Are they an unindicted, unnamed co-conspirator, like individual one in the indictment of Michael Cohen, you remember, out of the Southern District of New York? 
not precisely clear, and there could be a lot of overlap there. Through McGonagall's efforts, Agent One's daughter received VIP treatment from the NYPD. An NYPD sergeant assigned to brief Agent One's daughter subsequently reported the event to the NYPD and FBI because, among other reasons, Agent One's daughter claimed to have an unusually close relationship to, quote, an FBI agent who had given her access to confidential FBI files. And it was unusual for a college student to receive such special treatment from the NYPD and FBI. So this daughter then claims to have access to confidential FBI files. Why would she make that claim? If, in fact, the daughter herself was a mole, was an infiltration of the NYPD, then it seems that that infiltration, that mole, that person was not very skillful, not very tactful in that infiltration by obviously raising red flags through pointing to this access to documents. Of course, it could have been accidental. Uh, This is a college student, allegedly, working as an intern, getting the red carpet treatment. So that is one part of this that is mentioned here that describes the background connection between McGonagall, this Agent One, who is acting later in the indictment, allegedly on behalf of Oleg Deripaska, this Russian oligarch. And then there's Shostakov, who is the Russian translator turned American citizen, Russian-American kind of translator. Now, these players later in the indictment uh, go into business with one another. And that's what we're going to talk about here in this indictment and what actually happened. Now, There's a lot of talk in the indictment about how there's a 2019 law firm engagement. So what happens ultimately is that McGonagall leaves the FBI. He leaves this position at the FBI and he goes to work for a law firm. Now, the law firm is not named in this indictment. Which law firm is it? Is it Perkins Coie? That wouldn't surprise me. Is it Aiken Gump? Is it, you know, who who is it? We don't know who this white shoe law firm is. It does not appear. I mean, it could be the case that McGonagall actually worked as an employee for them. In the very quick reading of this indictment that I've been able to do, I haven't established that yet. And it may not be clear in here. I, I just haven't been able to establish it quite yet. Now, here's what happens. McGonagall leaves the FBI. He ends up working sort of with, we can say at a minimum, this law firm. And what's happening here is that McGonagall essentially brings in Deripaska as a client to the law firm. Now, uh, if you know anything about kind of the law, the, the world of white shoe law firms, and it's widely applicable to lobbying firms as well, the people who make the real money at these firms, because you can only bill so many hours, the people who really make the money are not necessarily the people who spend the most time in the courtroom or spend the most time in depositions or spend the most time uh, actually practicing law, per se. Oftentimes, the people who make the most money are the people who can reliably bring in business, who can sell business. They often call these people rainmakers. And that is sort of the role, apparently, that McGonagall is serving here. Now, you have to understand McGonagall leaving this senior role at the FBI would be in a position where, I mean, even before he's necessarily leaving, but certainly if his retirement is being announced, if it gets out there, he's got a list of job offers a mile long from all of the white shoe law firms, from uh, from the big tech companies, you name it. I mean, from from all of these kinds of players. And they are going to be rolling out the red carpet for, for him, uh, bidding him up. You saw that that James Baker worked for Twitter. Somebody in his position leaving the FBI uh, could could make probably 400000 a year working for a big tech operation, actually practicing law and, and guiding the practice of law for that firm, could potentially make a lot more for a big law firm. I'm just trying to paint the, the picture here because it, it's not a world that a lot of people have visibility into. I'm trying to give you some of the qualitative elements of of what's at play here. So McGonagall goes and works for this law firm. We don't know the law firm. And he is set to bring in Deripaska as a client. And he, in fact, does that. 
So he brings in Deripaska as a client. Uh, pursuant to the terms of the engagement between the law firm and Deripaska, I'm reading now from the indictment once again, Deripaska was to pay the law firm $175,000 per month. It's a lot of money. Uh, with 25000 quote, currently earmarked, unquote, for, quote, certain other professionals, unquote. The law firm retained McGonigal. So, so he's acting outside of the firm, I guess, as an outside kind of person, as a consultant and investigator on the Deripaska matter. McGonigal asked the law firm to compensate him by transmitting 25000 to a corporation owned by Shostakov. The law firm, in fact, made that payment. So the 25000 was for McGonigal. It gets transferred to Shostakov. The law firm's work for Deripaska was interrupted by, among other things, the COVID-19 pandemic. Although the engagement was not formally terminated, the work and payment on the matter ceased in or about March of 2020. Okay, so there's a number of issues here. Now, is it illegal for the Russian oligarch, being that he's under sanctions, to hire a law firm? It seems that really what he wants is more resembles lobbying than legal work. It's not like the law firm's going to sue OFAC to have him removed from a sanctions list. What they're going to be doing is really uh, lobbying in, in the true sense. Now, them having a legal background is, is helpful in doing that, but, but principally that's what the role is here. Now, of course, in doing an engagement like this, it, it would be on the safe side of things likely to have a filing done for Foreign Agent Registration Act, a FARA filing. That would be what you'd probably do here. There's questions about is Deripaska acting on behalf of the Russian state, but just to play on the safe side of things, you would file a FARA. Now, in this whole engagement here, you know, the 25000 is transmitted to McGonagall to act as a consultant and investigator. So what is the actual crime here? What's the actual crime here? Well, here's the thing. What, what you're looking at is a situation in which Oleg Deripaska was widely known as a sort of a go-between uh, between sort of Russian intelligence and U.S. and British intelligence or, you know, Western intelligence, let's call it. That was widely thought to be the case. So Oleg Deripaska is somebody who uh, spends a lot of time in New York City, has great big mansions there, spends a lot of time in London in Vienna. He probably spends the majority of his time in London. Uh, he has kids who are U.S. citizens. And for a long time, uh, they may not have liked necessarily Oleg Deripaska, Western intelligence that is, and law enforcement. They may have taken issue with how he came about his money in the collapse of the Soviet Union. But he was somebody who was allowed to run around New York City, allowed to run around London, allowed to spend a lot of time in Beverly Hills. And when the most recent uh, situation took place with Russia invading Ukraine, these Western intelligence agencies and, and, and law enforcement agencies really turned on Deripaska. Now, it seems to have been the case for a long time that they relied on Deripaska to kind of put pressure on Putin to do certain things that he could within Russia, and that when he wouldn't do that, they might add him to sanctions lists or might not. Now, he was left out of these sorts of uh, kind of sanctions list for a long time, allowed to function, allowed to own, um, I think, the, the Chelsea uh, uh, soccer team in the UK, although I think he has now been forced to sell that. And now they've turned on him. So now selectively looking back, they're now charging him and anybody who's done business with him with crimes. They stopped one of his girlfriends from coming into the United States to have a child uh, a number of months back who was coming in on a private jet to do that, to have another U.S. citizen child. He already, he already has one or two. And they're targeting him as part of a geopolitical maneuvering that's taking place. They raided and, I guess, seized his home in Washington, D.C., that is Deripaska's home. Now, where McGonagall seems to have gotten into trouble here is not that necessarily the investigations that he was doing through the law firm for Deripaska, not that those were necessarily illegal or uh, not allowed for him to, to do, but instead what seems to be the case is, is truly the problem here was that the way in which he received payments, the way in which money was sent around, the use of shell corporations, uh, the use of 
pseudonyms to describe Deripaska, calling him our Vienna client, calling him our friend in London, you know, different things like this, raised the specter of money laundering. And as you know, or probably know if you've been watching this show for a long time, money laundering, like wire fraud, is a very broad statute. They can, they can call almost anything money laundering if they want to. And now very selectively, they have called the way in which McGonagall sent around money, the way in which he had others receive money on his behalf, including this Shostakov character, they have decided to call that money laundering. Interestingly, there is not a charge of uh, Farah here. There's, uh, I'm reading through, I mean, count one is conspiracy to violate the International Emergency Powers Act. There's a second count of that exact charge uh, for count two. Count three uh, is conspiracy to commit money laundering. And count four is money laundering. Count five is false statements. You have to be careful with false statements. Again, even if you're a former FBI agent, you don't talk to the FBI. And, And people constantly, no matter how many times they're told and they acknowledge that you should never talk to the police, most particularly never talk to the feds. They do so and they end up getting charged with false statements to federal officers lying to the FBI. They end up getting charged with obstruction. They end up getting themselves into process crimes by doing so. And so there's this big move to come after Deripaska. There was a big 60 Minutes piece on this put out, I think, last week as they charge him. So this is a breakdown of the actual details of this indictment that you are very unlikely to see on Tim Pool's show, that you're very unlikely to see uh, anywhere else in the conservative sphere and and likely anywhere else in the media, an actual detailed breakdown of what is happening here. What you're going to see is you're going to see the meme, which is an obvious meme, and it it is an understandable one, and it's a correct one, that you have McGonagall investigating Trump, leaking, allegedly trying to to basically accuse Trump of being a Russian agent, while at the same time uh, doing very shady dealings with Russian agents and then leaving the FBI and going on to do those even more. Profiting out of the whole thing, it looks like maybe $25,000. So he's certainly going to have a lot more in legal fees that come out of this at a bare minimum than he will have ever made from it, at least by the looks of this. It's possible they haven't discovered other earnings that came into him. Very possible uh, that that was the case. So there's a reason that the timing on something like this happens now. Now, this comes out of the Southern District of New York. They do not like to charge their own. You know that that's the case. Uh, And so... We'll see what happens here, but the details of this case are as important as the actual meme, and I'm glad that we had a chance to go through them. Again, this is just breaking this story in the last hour or so, and so I'm glad that I've had a chance to go over this. This person says here, speaking of which, what is the best way to land a CIA or FBI entry-level job uh, to prove oneself for further roles? The best way is is to is to apply and to have the right kinds of uh, background pieces. It always helps to be a lawyer if you're going to apply, to, at least to the FBI. A lot of lawyers work there, uh, but it's not necessarily required. Uh, when it comes to CIA, it's uh, many of the same things in terms of references. Having a, a skill helps. Having an accounting degree or having a uh, you know, a degree in some kind of actual hard skill, electrical engineering, or it doesn't really matter, rather than just uh, international relations or something like that. And then the big thing with CIA, and this doesn't hurt with FBI either, but the really big thing with CIA is to, uh, if you speak another language or two or three or four, that would be fantastic. So they like that as well. Uh, Going into these places, though, you know, is uh, something that's perilous, but I, I would rather we have some of our own people in here than uh, not people that, you know, are viewers of this show. So that's one way to do this. Um, Somebody asked here in the chat before we move on to the next story, does using a platform like Robinhood to buy stocks uh, expose an investor to a type of risk that you experience with FTX? Uh, No, no, it doesn't. Because Robinhood is is a brokerage house which, uh, has SIPC insurance. 
And so, um, you know, you have you have a way in which your your accounts are secured, uh, so that if there was ever a meltdown of Robinhood, you wouldn't necessarily lose everything. Um, not necessarily. Now, you know, you could be wrapped up in insurance claims for a long time, and you you know, I think you know being separated from your money in an instance like that, having situations play out where where you don't have access to your money for a long time like MF Global, the way that that operation went down, it's it's a risk worth considering. And so when you talk about being an investor, I think that it does make sense to do some due diligence into the books of the place that you're investing, that's holding your investments, that is, that, that's custodying your funds. And the more solid their books, the better, as I see it. Because even though you have insurance, uh, in that case, SIPC and other programs, uh, you know, I, I I think that there's better platforms out there. So I, I'm not really a fan of Robinhood. I must say, people are allured by the fact they don't charge commissions. But look, guys, you know they're not <laughs> they're not operating for free. They've got to turn a profit too, and the way that they turn a profit is by selling your order flow to the highest bidder, which other brokerage houses will do as well. But you can at least with other brokerage houses, you can pay a small commission to get the very best price matters more if you're actively trading than if you're just passive. Uh, but they're also taking the interest on cash sweep. And right now, you know, given the way that interest rates have increased, using money market accounts, using fixed income products, uh, whether it's uh, treasury bills or what have you, to earn a little interest on your cash position is actually something that, that, that generates a return. It means something. And so, the fact that you know Robinhood is going to pilfer that from you is something that I'm not a fan of. I also don't love their technology at all, uh, but it's up to you. But it's not necessarily the same thing as FTX. It's not really close to that in terms of the risk. Um, so, um, yeah, in terms of getting to FBI and CIA too, I mean, being a transgender would certainly help you get in. Um so, you know, if you're a tranny, that would help you get a job at CIA or FBI. Um, being a woman would help. Um, if you're black, that's definitely a big boost to getting a job there. Um, if none of those things apply, certainly, if you, you know, being queer would be a good idea. Gay, bisexual, uh, pansexual, uh, what have you. That would all help. Um, having interned or worked for Democrat politicians would help. These are kind of the unofficial marks, but yeah, they certainly help you get a job at a place like that. Um, being any kind of a deviant or freak would would be a would be a plus in terms of getting getting hired there uh, in this day and age, by all indications. So all of that uh, certainly applies. So you know that's. Uh, that's what's what's going on there. Now, of course, more uh, documents found in Biden's home, uh, this time DOJ actually performing the search. I guess he just has these things like all over the place. He has several homes and they're, they're very large homes. Uh, and so he, he's had this search going on and six more boxes were found with classified documents in them, says his own personal attorney. Initially, all of the outlets reported that it was six documents. Then they said, no, no, six containers of documents that had classified uh, material in them. Again, I think this is much to do about nothing. I don't really know what the big deal is here. Uh, you know, if, if he really wanted somebody to read those documents, if he was really compromised and, and wanted the Chinese to read the documents, he could call up President Xi on the phone and tell him what's in the documents. He could also just declassify them now as president and uh, send them over. Or, you know, as vice president, he could just email them. I mean, so there's, there's, you wouldn't have to like leave them in your house and then have the Chinese guy sneak onto the property and then read the documents that way. I don't think that this is some kind of dead drop. Although, just as Democrats will claim that that was taking place at Mar-a-Lago for the Russians, you're going to have conservatives claim that that was what was taking place at Biden's home for the Chinese. I haven't seen any evidence of that, but those revelations come amid an announcement 
that Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, the guy who has really been running the country now for the last two years or so, is stepping down. He is set to step down after the State of the Union in the next couple of weeks. Uh, he will be replaced. That is, Ron Klain, as chief of staff, will be replaced by Jeffrey Zients. Zients is another guy who came in at the same time as Klain. I did an episode as the Biden administration was coming together, and this must have been November or maybe December of 2020. And I, I described each of these people. We did a nice breakdown on who they are. And it was, you know, all kinds of lobbyists and, and donors and money men that Biden was bringing in to various parts of the administration. Zients is a very sort of prolific Silicon Valley tech executive, not the kind that you would know about from, you know, sort of consumer facing companies, but more kind of B2B Silicon Valley powerhouse companies that he's been various sorts of executives for. Obviously, a major Democrat donor, a huge uh, bundler for the Democrat Party. He served here to four in the Biden administration as the COVID-19 czar. Uh, yes, that's the position. I've never understood this czar thing. I think it started under Obama, but it may have started even previous to that. I've also got some sources. I've had two sources recently in the last week tell me, both of them positioned in major D.C. powerhouse uh kind of white shoe law firm, lobbying firm type situations uh, that, that work regularly with some of the people involved here, uh, say that Biden will announce his 2024 run for president within a month. And the thinking is that Biden does believe that Trump will beat out DeSantis in a primary. And Biden thinks that he beat Trump once and he can beat him again. And he doesn't want to leave the country in uh, the in the leadership of Trump, uh, should he step aside and then some other candidate come up that Trump beats and he doesn't want to be blamed for that. So that is uh, the plan here. That's what I've been told. So that's that's the update from Biden world, what's happening there. Uh, moving along here, you see this story about this six-year-old boy shot his teacher. This is in Newport News, Virginia. Now, Unbelievably, the New York Post tried to memory hole this image that shows that this was a six-year-old black boy. Uh, they blurred his face. You can't see his face. I think really, you know, it's, you ought to keep pictures of children off the Internet totally. I mean, I wouldn't post pictures of, of my kids on the Internet. It's not something you do, in my view, because there's just too many creeps out there. And, and it's just not something you want to do, in my view. I, what's the upside? That's that's kind of how I see it, of posting your, your kids publicly online. But anyway, the New York Post later deleted this uh, tweet and other tweets of this. They deleted the photo. They've tried to remove it, and they replaced it with a different photo showing, like, you know, the teacher, then a stock image of school chairs or, and a gun or something. So they're trying to, to memory hold this. Um, but this is, this is what happened. Now, the Washington Post did a, a longer investigative piece of exactly what's going on at this school. The, the report in the Washington Post is titled, A School Downplayed Warnings About Six-Year-Old Before uh, Teacher Shooting Staffers Say. The report says, The Virginia teacher who was shot by a six-year-old student repeatedly asked administrators to help with the boy, but officials downplayed the educator's warnings about his behavior, including dismissing his threat to light a teacher on fire and watch her die. This is a six-year-old boy, and he said he wanted to light a teacher on fire and watch her die. I mean, what do you even say? I mean, uh, and they downplayed this? According to messages from teachers obtained by the Washington Post, all of this, uh, the previously unreported incidents raise fresh questions about how Rich Neck Elementary School in Newport News handled the troubled student before police say he shot Abigail Zwerner as she taught her first grade class earlier this month. Authorities called the shooting intentional, but are still investigating the motive. Many parents are already outraged over Rich Neck officials' management of events before the shooting. Newport News Superintendent George Parker III has said... School officials got a tip about a boy with a gun that day and searched his backpack, but staffers never found the weapon before authorities say the six-year-old shot Zwerner. Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew said his department was not contacted about the report that the boy had a weapon before the shooting. 
So they didn't even bother calling the cops. Six years old. Once again, six years old. Police and school officials have repeatedly declined to answer questions about the boy's disciplinary issues or worrisome behaviors that the six-year-old may have exhibited. Uh, It's just unbelievable, citing his age. The boy's family said in a statement he has, quote, an acute disability. But James Ellenson, an attorney for the family, declined to comment on accounts of the boy's behavior and how it handled, how it was handled by the school. Uh, so they're clamming up, not sharing information. So it's just uh, th- there's confirmation that this teacher raised alarms, according to other teachers at the school, talking to the Washington Post. Um. So they were just downplaying all of this, not not listening to the warnings of this deranged, deranged young man. The teacher survived. Uh, it's just, it's just really crazy how how this is how this is allowed to take place. There's there's more in the Washington Post report if you're interest, in, interested, but it just goes on and on about what was happening and how they ignored. This report, but this is not an isolated incident of things like this. There was a video I shared on my Telegram. Can't show it on YouTube, I I I, I think. But you know, if this fight that was taking place in um, what was a Spotsylvania County, Virginia, another place kind of in this general region outside of Richmond, uh, predominantly black school, and there's just like 15 individual fist fights, group three, four fist fights going on once, just a complete and utter riot. At this school, I tweeted the video from Twitter of this, or I posted the video of, uh, from Twitter of this on my Telegram last week. I still don't have Twitter. I don't know what the holdup is there, guys. If you want to tag uh, Elon. And let me give you the other. There's this Ella Gerwin, this Ella Gerwin woman. Um, tag her also politely, if you would, and ask her what the holdup is in restoring Jacob Wool at Jacob A. Wool on Twitter. Maybe just ask her, you know, what the holdup is. Politely ask her to look into it. It's Ella Gerwin. Ella Gerwin on Twitter. She's apparently overseeing a lot of this effort. If you guys would be so kind, of course, be polite. Be very nice. And I mean that because we don't want to send a bad message about what kind of people uh, watch this show. And maybe tag her and ask her what the heck's going on. Uh, What's the holdup? I mean, I think it's a very ad hoc process, it seems to me. But I don't think it would hurt to have... uh, some of you guys on Twitter, just tag her and say, hey, you know, if you could get to restoring Jacob Wool at Jacob A. Wool, that would be great. That would be wonderful if you guys could do that. But as I mentioned, this is a prevailing trend. There's this report in the Wall Street Journal. The title of the report here is Juvenile Crime Surges Reversing a Long Decline. Quote, it's just kids killing kids. Violence amongst children soared across the country since 2020. One consequence, a mounting Toll of young victims. Port says here a 13 year old boy ran through the Bronx streets one May afternoon last year, chased by two teens on a scooter. Surveillance video showed them frantically trying to open doors of an assisted living facility. The scooter peeled onto the sidewalk and sped towards him. A 15 year old boy riding on the back pointed a handgun and fired multiple times, police say. Wow. Violence amongst children has soared across the country since 2020. A stark reversal of a decades-long decline in juvenile crime. In the U.S., homicides committed by juveniles acting alone rose 30% from 2020, or in 2020 from a year earlier, while those committed by multiple juveniles increased 66%. The number of killings committed by children under 14 was the highest in two decades, according to the most recent federal data. The highest in two decades. And I have sat in these courtrooms, by the way, and I've seen some of these cases come across as I've had to deal with our own legal nonsense. And it's like you have 15-year-old girls committing attempted murder, carjacking, you name it. 15-year-old girls. You have women involved in this, young women involved in this. Kids as young as 13, 12, 10, 7, committing carjackings across the country. I would ask the question of where are their parents, but, you know, I mean, what what are we doing here? I'm not in, I don't do the show to waste my breath and... We know the parents are completely irresponsible. And you know what's interesting is it's like sometimes these parents will come into court, never a father, of course, always always a mother, a grandmother, an aunt. And they will, you know, plead with the judge to give bail 
and they'll cry and they, they come across as really genuine and you, you feel bad for them. And you say what, but it's like, well, you know, you've got these little monsters running around. What do you want us to do? It's just, it's just totally out of control. It says Karina was one of 153 victims in New York City under the age of 18 shot in 2022. In the most, the most in six years, 127 total minors shot in 2018 and 19 combined. So it's up huge. I mean, it's doubled and tripled in some parts of the country. DC, it's really out of control. You have young kids doing carjackings all over DC. And yet you had the DC, basically the city council, uh, vote to lower the penalty for uh, lower the penalty for armed carjacking over, by the way, overruling the veto of the mayor. Now, it doesn't get much more far left than the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser. It doesn't get much more far left than that. And yet the city council is even further left than her and votes to overrule her veto of this and lower the penalties for armed carjackings. So you have Democrats out there now serving as the advocates for violent criminals, violent monsters running our streets, carjacking, shooting, killing. Uh, that's what's going on. It says here, the nationwide, the nationwide wave began to ebb in 22, but in some communities, shootings involving minors have continued to surge. It says here, in fact, in the WSJ report, uh, in Washington, D.C., there were 214 firearm-related arrests of children in 2022, a higher count than each of the prior three years. 16 juveniles were shot last year in the district compared with nine in 2021. And so just, just constant carjackings, constant shootings, constant drive-bys, totally and completely out of control. The, the, this Wall Street Journal report goes on. You can read more if you want. It's just gruesome, more and more gruesome details. It goes on and on and on. Uh, but I am... It says any word on that event in California here in the chat. Um, I mean, there's just limited information now. Some 72-year-old Asian guy with a handgun did it. It's surprising. Usually you're not able to get that many deaths in a shooting that involves only a handgun uh, just because handguns are not nearly as deadly as rifles. And so... It's kind of wild that that happened. Ten deaths and ten injuries, I believe, so far. Um, can you briefly talk about how you and other white-collar government... Well, I'm not a government worker, but uh, navigate the DMV area. Well, I, 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 you know, I, I drive to get around. I don't navigate the DMV area literally. I mean, as far as that goes, I, I don't take the metro. I wouldn't... Uh, do that because if they wanted to kill me, if the deep state wanted to kill me, they'd make it look like an accident or they'd make it look not like an accident. They make it look like a robbery on the train. And so I just keep myself out of that position. And before you assuage or eschew that kind of concern, remember that my business partner, Jack Berkman was shot by a sniper in Roslyn three times. Thankfully he was not killed. Thankfully he survived his dachshund, his little dog, Jackie, Jack Jr., was also shot by the assailant. Then the assailant pulled out and ran him over to try to finish him off and uh, had a suppressed uh, rifle up in this parking garage that's now been demolished. Um, and so he was nearly killed by this former Marine, wasn't caught until four months later. And then when he was caught, he was given a slap on the wrist and uh, only a nine-year sentence for committing this attempted assassination. So it is something I, I have to mitigate. Um, that was in 2018. You just look up Jack Berkman shot if you want to see that. We, we also had both of our emails hacked by an FBI agent. And so uh, you look that up, Berkman FBI email hacked. He was convicted of doing that. Uh, because it was so clear as day that he had committed the hacking. This FBI special agent, rogue FBI special agent, committed the hacking. No warrant, nothing, just hacked into both of our emails. He pleaded guilty. And Judge Amy Berman Jackson in the District of Columbia sentenced him to seven days, which he never actually served because of COVID. That was in late 2019 when he was sentenced. So, yeah, we deal with actual brutal 
oncoming attacks from the deep state on a regular basis. It, it is what it, I mean. And then obviously, you know, about 2020, the robo madness suing us under the KKK Act of 1873, two Jews calling us Klansmen. So we deal with just complete and ongoing attack on a regular basis, whether it's lawsuits, whether it's bogus criminal charges, whether it's uh, hacking from the deep state as has been proven in court and pleaded guilty to by a now former FBI agent who worked for the FBI at the time, or Jack being shot. So we we have to mitigate against all of these things. And and so um, I'm not going to get into how the hacking happened or two-factor or whatever. I'm not going to get into that because there's there's no need to, but I'll I'll put it this way that they had he had tools uh that that were given to him as an FBI agent that enabled him to commit the hacking wherein two-factor authentication can be usurped think about this two-factor authentication can be usurped if you have access to somebody's texts okay so they have certain tools at the FBI that will usurp two-factor authentication, either by reading the text or by cloning the number to actually receive the text. So if somebody's got hacking tools at the FBI, I mean, they just punch in what the email is, what the phone number is, and they walk right into it. The problem for him is that he used these tools, and then in the tools, you have to drag and drop the relevant search warrant. Uh, that gives you authorization to use it. And he didn't have one. So he dragged and dropped a document of something else and it, it caught it, thankfully. And he was caught and he was charged, surprisingly. And he ple- pleaded guilty. And so he was given basically no sentence. But uh, it's something to, to, to keep in mind. Um, yeah, thank God he missed, unlike Lee Harvey Oswald. So uh, something important to to remember here. But, you know, as I look at this report about juvenile crime here, and, and we talk about this, and it's a, it's a theme that we followed on the show for a long time, I am reminded of Hillary Clinton's faithful words, or fateful words, uh, that she was attacked for by Trump in, in 2016, unbelievably. Trump, who wanted to be the law and order president, and then would attack Hillary from the left on crime, and then did the same to Joe Biden over the 94 crime bill uh, in, in 2020. Let's listen to Hillary Clinton talk about this. But we also have to have an organized effort against gangs, just as in a previous generation we had an organized effort against the mob. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. So this is what Hillary Clinton said. She's been attacked for this. Now, in in the 90s, the problem really was gangs. It was organized black gangs. It was organized Hispanic gangs. And they had to do gang sweeps. They had to end the gang problem because it was getting completely and utterly out of control. Now, they did that. It happened. People got mandatory minimums. Of course, they were connected to drug cartels. That was their supplier of the drugs. Now, Peter Zion, uh, spelled Zahan, basically, Zion is how he pronounces it, is somebody I've been following a bit. He's got some interesting takes. I think basically his, his reading of trends are more or less correct. What I think he might be underestimating are the abilities of governments and the private sector to overcome those trends. So like he, he sees a downward trend line for China's population, for example, and he just kind of projects that out and, and doesn't factor for, well, maybe China can generate a major baby boom using the force of the state and major advertising and everything else. Now, maybe they can't. And that would be the catastrophic situation for China. But maybe they can because Singapore has had instances where, you know, they advertised one direction and said two ch- children are enough, don't have three without forcing it. But they, that's what they advertised, major advertising pushes. Then they had to reverse it. And they advertised, have more children, have a bigger family. Big families are great. And they've been able to reverse downward population uh, curves that were starting to take hold. And I've, and I've looked at the charts on this. Now they're into another one they're going to have to maybe reverse and, and take a look at. So anyway, that's Peter Zayan or Zion. 
And um, he basically opines that what happened was that the Sinaloa cartel came in, co-opted all of the Mexican gangs and either co-opted or wiped out the black gangs. Because you don't hear a lot about black gangs anymore. Wiped out meaning shot dead. Uh I don't know, you know, to what degree that's true. I'm still looking into that. I, I'm researching it. I have a lot of sources in that law enforcement type community. I mean, my dad's a huge, uh, hugely successful criminal defense attorney in California, knows a lot about this stuff, deals with it every day of the week. So I'm looking into it. Um, but we'll see whether that's true. But the bottom line is in the 90s, it was super predators and gangs that were the problem. And she said, it's not just gangs of kids anymore. Well, the gang problem has has receded to some degree. Now it is just gangs of kids again. Uh, but they're still super predators and they're equally dangerous or more dangerous, in fact, perhaps than they were in gangs because in gangs they were busier dealing with each other. I think Chicago still got more of a gang problem. Certain places do, but like DC, you don't hear anything about black gangs. You don't hear anything about black gangs in Southern California for the most part anymore. So it's unclear. I'm looking more and more into it. It's, it's just not something where you have like an official history written on it for the most part, at least not yet. That's what Peter Zion has said. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm studying that. I'm trying to figure out what the case is there. So she was right. The problem is you have people with no empathy, no conscience, no moral grasp whatsoever, like this six-year-old who shoots his teacher and says he wanted to set her on fire and watch her burn to death. And they're running wild. And then on the left, there's there's, you know, an idea that, well, you know, the, 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 the problem here are the guns and we'll just round up all the guns. We'll get guns off the street. And it's like, OK, well, you know, they do one bus after another. They take 100 guns off the street and there's 100 more. So dealing with the guns as the problem here just doesn't seem to be working and certainly not turning out the people who use them on bail to go kill more people or turning them out, uh, period, and not jailing them seems to be a problem. Uh, Joe Biden had an expansion on this, uh, kind of an expanded speech. This is a clip that I found of him. I, it was hard to track down the kind of the full speech here. This is on the Senate floor in November, I think November 18th of 1993, when Joe Biden was trying to push uh, the now famous or infamous 1994 crime bill that really stemmed a lot of this at the time and started the trend going down, which is the right direction for violent crime otherwise known as the Biden bill or the Biden hatch bill worked with Orrin Hatch on that. We all remember Orrin Hatch. He was a very good Senator out of Utah. He was trying to get it across the finish line. And, and this is what he had to say. Listen to Biden's fateful words here. The clip from that speech that I pulled out this morning. And Madam president, we have predators on our streets that society has in fact, in part because of its neglect created. Again, it does not mean because we created them that we somehow forgive them or do not take them out of society to protect my family and yours from them. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Beyond the pale. And it's a sad commentary on society. We have no choice but to take them out of society. And the truth is, we don't very well know how to rehabilitate them at that point. That's the sad truth. You're looking at the fellow who was one of the primary architects of the Sentencing Commission. You know what the basic premise of the Sentencing Commission is? I know the presiding officer knows. It was the first time in 80 years we rejected the notion that the condition of sentencing must be related to how long it would take to rehabilitate. I'm the guy that said rehabilitation, when it occurs, we don't understand it and notice it. And when we, even when we notice it and we know it occurs, we don't know why. So you cannot make rehabilitation a condition for release. That's why in our system, there's the federal system, you serve 85% of your time. I remember when it was going on, when I was making these arguments in the late 70s, they used to call it Biden's same time for the same crime provision. It's a shame, but we don't know how to rehabilitate. But there is a consensus, and I will cease. A, we must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. I don't care why someone is antisocial. I don't care why they become a sociopath. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, try to change their behavior. That's why we do in this bill. We have drug treatment and we have other treatments to try to deal with it. But they are in jail, away from my mother, your husband, our families. 
And so that is sort of the issue today is that all this attention paid to all of these other factors and, you know, they're worthy of attention too. But what Biden says here that I think was so uh, critically correct is that when people are rehabilitated through jail, it's seemingly rare. We don't have a good understanding of why that is. I mean, there's been more research into this since 1993, and the best that anyone can tell. The only thing that will basically create a situation in which somebody is rehabilitated in jail is a situation in which they were not actually rehabilitated in jail. What happened was that they were unlikely to commit the offense that they committed in the first place. And thus, they're equally unlikely to commit that same offense or another like it again. And so essentially, when a probation department goes through and they they do a report for sentencing and they say, did you grow up with two parents in the household? You know, OK, well, check. They had two parents in the household. That means they're less likely to become a criminal. OK, uh, did your parents abuse drugs? OK, no, the parents didn't abuse drugs. You're less likely. You know, all of those kinds of questions. Do you abuse drugs? Do you live in a high crime area? Do you associate with criminals? Yes or no? Those all of those factors on a rubric. If all of those factors meant that the person was unlikely to commit the crime they committed, and maybe they didn't commit the crime they committed, maybe they were truly and honestly innocent of that crime. Well, then they come out and you say, well, look, they're rehabilitated. They didn't go back to jail. Well, no, they weren't rehabilitated. They were habilitated in the first place. And they're still habilitated. And and so, you know, if anything, the, the, the jail didn't do them any good. It maybe made them more likely to commit crime because now they know some criminals and they didn't before and all of that. And so that's why when you see, for example, you know, the stories of uh, somebody who's a, a crooked stockbroker, you know, they're a stockbroker, they go off the rails, they get caught quickly, they do 18 months in the federal pen, and they come out. Um, if in the first place, they had an upbringing that made them very unlikely to commit crime or suffer moral failings in the first place, then when they get out, they don't reoffend. You do have recidivism of white collar crimes, of course. It's it's just not anything like what you see in the county jail system, blue collar criminals committing carjackings. I mean, they're only being caught one out of 10 times, one out of 10 crimes they're committing anyway. I mean, one out of 10 if, if and that's probably an optimistic estimate. So a much more reality-based view of the crime issue that is not purely based around the warm, loving, soft, brotherly instincts. And you know, I am, having been on the receiving end of the justice system gone wrong, the justice system gone corrupt in many instances, I am as skeptical of the justice system as anyone else. I'm, I'm probably more skeptical of the justice system than you. I'm certainly more skeptical than many of my colleagues on the right, like Ann Coulter, where they're predisposed to believe anything a prosecutor says. They're predisposed to, to believe anything a cop says. Back the blue, thin blue line. And, and we now know, hopefully, after seeing all of this corruption at the FBI, like we just talked about earlier in this show, at the highest levels and at the lowest levels and everywhere in between, we can now look at this and say, well, you know what? The burden of proof is on them. We'll let them prove things. And if they can prove things beyond a reasonable doubt, if they can prove allegations beyond a reasonable doubt, well, okay. And then we have to think about what to do. But what Biden talks about here where, look, we don't know exactly why the six-year-old is shooting the teacher. We don't know why the 14-year-old is committing a carjacking. But the bottom line is to get them away from the people that they can and that they will hurt, steal from, kill, rape, maim, terrorize. And that was the basic premise of getting violent crime down in the early 90s, early to mid 90s. And it worked. Say whatever you will about it, it worked. We've gone away from that clearly. We've gone towards these uh, other philosophies to the point where you have what you see in D.C. Where, where the politicians treat violent carjackers as their most prized, beloved constituency. 
And that's a major issue. Uh, I want to go here to this segment that I've got to get out of the way here. Um, we were supposed to cover it on the last show. And it has to do with this uh, with this DCG. So let's go here. Um, this is uh, about this uh, DCG group. And the headline here is, A crypto magnet saw the risks and was still hammered. Now, this is an article in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, you might assume that because it's in the Wall Street Journal, uh, it is credible and it is to be be believed. Now, I, I it came to my attention because I saw a, a tweet and uh, the tweet seemed to suggest that this was done by a PR firm and it was organized by a PR firm. And when you read through this article, there there are so many tells of that fact. I mean, from right from the headline, it says that he saw the risks and was still hammered as if there was nothing he could do. It obviates him of responsibility. This is about Barry Silbert, the head of Digital Currency Group which is now uh, in a position where many of its pieces, many of its constituencies, many of its subsidiaries have gone bankrupt, have gone bust, have collapsed. It talks about that here. But that's not really the critical part. This is not about DCG. We've covered Genesis and Gemini, and we've covered these crypto operations that have gone bust. But I want to show you how to spot an article that is bought and paid for. And it is happening at places like the Wall Street Journal, which you wouldn't think. I mean, you've all seen those pay-for-play articles at outlets like Forbes and Fortune where, you know, you've got uh, these so-called contributors and you can pay them two grand and they'll put an article in that makes you look like a phenom. And all but the lowest functioning people know how that works or, or the, the least learned people know how that works. But it talks about this this situation and and... I want to tell you how to spot this, and it's a telltale sign of one of these articles, and I'm going to show it to you here. Um, so again, it, it obviates him of, of responsibility because it was paid for by him, probably paid the PR firm something like 200 grand, and their cost was probably 50 because they have to buy these in bulk, usually by the half dozen or by the dozen, uh, buy these kind of favors. So we go through the article here, and there's... There's a lot of, a lot of problems. So here's here's one instance where you talk about superfluous details. So it says, um, unlike some in the crypto world who have cultivated public personas via TV appearances and bold predictions, Mr. Silbert actually avoided speaking publicly. People who he worked with, people who've worked with him, say he is uncomfortable making. Uh, small talk and has three computer screens on his desk where he keeps Twitter and CNBC running. On vacations, Mr. Silbert often lugs piles of books to the hotel pool, his wife told a colleague of his. So like what? This detail, on vacation, Mr. Silbert often lugs piles of books to the hotel pool, his wife once told a colleague of his. So this is not attributed associated what colleague of his did the colleague tell you or did some other person tell you they don't say they don't say at all it's 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 very and here's another one here it says um around 2020 mr silbert decided to move most of the businesses from lower manhattan to stanford connecticut where he lived dcg spent 50 million dollars renovating an office there hoping to attract young staffers The work included installing a fancy kitchen where the chef handles lunch requests, such as grilled octopus. Mr. Silbert usually brings his own meals to work. Oh, like, you know, he's a brown bagger. He's he's bringing his sack lunch to work. His wife packs him lunch. You see, it's it's an attempt to make him seem humble, to make him seem like an everyman. And, And again, where is this fact attributable to? How do they know what who who says that? Again, this was written in by the PR firm. It's a, it's a superfluous detail meant to humanize him uh, as this operation collapses and he attempts to minimize the negative fallout to himself. And I'm not begrudging him for doing this, by the way. I'm not begrudging him for doing this, but it is something that you have to be on the lookout for and understand is what you're reading honest obviously discount anything you read in the media as likely being dishonest, but it also 
uh, it's just critical to, to be able to see this and, and, and just be able to judge the world and understand what's really happening behind the scenes. And, and I've been privy to some of these negotiations for things like this and, and, and know exactly how it goes. So it says, here's just another example here. It says, Genesis remained in New York where it hosted a 2021 Christmas party at a Cipriani restaurant featuring a full orchestra DJ, a huge treats bar, a fortune teller, arcade machines, and a champagne tower. Mr. Silbert didn't attend the event. Well, that's kind of weird. Why wouldn't he attend the customer, the, the, the company Christmas party, and why? See, just saying he didn't attend is, is sort of an attempt to, once again, remove him from the appearance of being in on this kind of excess of this now collapsed company. And if, if the head of the company didn't attend the event, why? Was he ill? Was he sick? Why didn't he not attend? Why did he not attend the event? They don't say. It's, and then it says here, this is a real tell. It says, Mr. Silbert doesn't like to manage employees, according to those close to him. Again, who? What does that mean? Who are those close to him? His PR firm? Instead, he focuses on allocating capital and defers day-to-day decisions to each unit's management. So there you go. Now you have a record here that's created in the Wall Street Journal, which is generally thought to be a reliable outlet. And assuming that, let's say, federal investigators are not already into the company's emails, they can now look at this and say, well, we can't charge Silbert because he doesn't make the day-to-day decisions. He defers those to other people. So I guess we can only go after those other people. Or at least that's what the public might think, at the very least. So again, it's an attempt to obviate him of any wrongdoing that may have taken place at the company, any excess that may have been taking place at the company. And it is totally telltale of this kind of a PR puff piece that is paid for by DCG's uh, PR budget, by Silbert's PR budget, perhaps. So... Uh, there are many tells like this in this article. I, I don't want to belabor this, but it is something to look for. Uh, you can see this piece. I, I tweeted it out uh, last week or, or posted it on Telegram last week. Hopefully I can tweet stuff out like this very soon. So you see those kind of details like that. And, um, you know, it's uh, really interesting. Gavin McGinnis says only 5% of people in jail belong there. I was a corrections officer for eight years. 5% of people might not belong there. The opposite of what he thinks. And you know, the other part about this is there are some people who actually shine in jail. Um, Their predispositions, the way that they are, they're just through and through criminals. That's who they are. In the same way that if you're a scientist, you're in your element when you're around other scientists. Uh, if you're a doctor, you might be in your element when you're around other doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals. There are people where, you know, the, the environment where they really shine is jail or prison. And that's just, you know, that's where they're in their element. They live their best life there. They don't have to concern themselves with worldly responsibilities like paying the bills or anything like that. Uh, they don't have to concern themselves with the, the kinds of uh, women that they might normally concern themselves with. And they really do well in jail. They like it, you know, not just because, oh, you know, it's hard to get back on your feet when you get out. No, I mean, they actually do shine and that's where they're in their element and people look up to them and they're, they're a scion uh, for others. But that's, um, that's an interesting comment there in, in the chat. Um, so, you know, it's uh, something that happens. What I've heard Gavin say, this person says in the chat, uh, this is Anthony, is that he thinks people are reformed after five years or something like that. Somebody says here, he believes everything should be legal while complaining about the crime wave. Well, I don't know, guys. I'm not totally familiar on that. I guess that's a topic for another day. Maybe I should have a discussion with him about that on air. That might be interesting. Um, That might be interesting. I've seen many prisoners uh, take up video gaming Freestyle rapping, basketball, and reading in prison. 
Many people do much better in jail than outside. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, folks, it's been great to have you today. I got to run here. Uh, we're going to have much more to talk about on Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Again, if you wouldn't mind, go tag Ella Gerwin on Twitter very politely and say, hey, what's the deal with uh, restoring Jacob Wall at Jacob A. Wall? I am finally asking that now. It's been enough delay, enough waiting. And let's, you know, again, very politely, very kindly uh, pose the question to her. Ella Gerwin, maybe tag Elon Musk as well. Um, but certainly tag her and, um, let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can bump me up the list there, whatever's taking so long and, uh, and, and, and get that thing moving. Let's see if we can get that thing moving. Of course, you can contribute financially to the show cash app at real Jacob wall. I appreciate all the kind donations and, uh, Jacob slash podcast as well. You can send in your questions, jacobwell.org slash contact for Thursday's show with or without a donation. I really appreciate the support, guys, and I'll see you Thursday at 2 p.m. Thanks so much.